You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate. Before before every Sunday service, we humbly acknowledge that we are on the territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations, whose lands were previously occupied by the Seneca and Huron and Wendat First Nations. I'm John DePetty, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this morning. Um, a couple of things. Uh, we'd love to have you stay for coffee afterwards. Uh, in the lounge over here, and if there's anybody that's new and visiting us for the first time, we have a folder in the back that we'd love you to take home with you. It gives you a little bit more information about us, who we are, and what we're about. Before we start this morning, I have a question for you. And my question is this. What's the difference between ignorance and apathy? Thank you, Gene. I don't know, and I don't care. Those are the the two pieces that, uh, I want to say irritate me, but those are the two pieces that touch me when I read the blogs, and I read the emails, and I read the, the stories in the newspaper about people who are talking about our planet. And they talk about it from that place of ignorance and they talk about it from that place of apathy. And it's really my pleasure this morning. Uh, let me back up. Our, our theme, as you probably know, is sustainability this morning. And it's my pleasure this morning to introduce, not to introduce, just to tell you that uh, we have somebody here that cares greatly and that is very knowledgeable. So the I don't know and I don't care We've dispelled that this morning here at West Hill. His name is Brian Kelly, and he'll get a a more formal introduction a little bit later in the service. Good morning, everybody. My name is Deb Ellis, for those of you who don't know me. Um, And uh, last year, we were doing a Climate Change Minute every Sunday, and so we're going to start moving back into those again. Uh, This is not a Climate Change Minute per se, but I wanted to draw your attention to uh, the fact that tomorrow is, for those of you who live in Toronto, tomorrow's the deadline uh, to give your comments about Toronto's 2021 to 2023 climate plan. So tomorrow's the deadline, and I'll just uh, let you know there are three major areas. One, they're going to ask about uh, transportation, so actions like expanding transit priority zones and bus-only lanes to reduce transportation-related emissions. The second area would be around financial tools and governance. So when Toronto passed the Climate Emergency Declaration, they committed to accelerating action on climate, so to ensure they have the resources they need dedicated sources of funding. So you're going to be asked about how that might happen. Uh, And number three is the buildings and energy. Just over half of Toronto's greenhouse gas emissions are produced by buildings. 
so they'll be asking for your uh, thoughts on improving housing and creating good jobs. Uh, there are a few other areas. Um, reducing waste, one of the top three sources of emissions in Toronto, and uh, using a climate assessment for making major city decisions, so that that's always part of the decision-making process. Uh, and that includes an equity assessment of climate actions. So uh, if you have time and you are interested, it's if you, if you Google City of Toronto Climate Plan Consultation, it will bring you to the right place. It's, uh, it's called Transform TO. That's the name of their plan. Or you can just go to toronto.ca and then you can find it through there. So, so please, if you have a, a moment uh, today or tomorrow, the deadline again is tomorrow, November 11th. So make your voice heard for this next four-year period. Thank you very much. Grounded, Guided, Growing. A Time for Centering. From Scott Kearns. I have always thought it would be interesting in a round, as you were singing this morning, if I were to change uh, keys in the middle, like... Would you all just morph into the next key? And, and I'll, I might do that next time. I, Babette said no, but I. But what I did do wrong originally when I put the song on the PowerPoint last night was I put three verses, and I thought, okay, that's good. We'll just sing through the three verses. But I realized only one verse goes up at a time. So Babette looked at me like that's a, an impossibility, and so I took the slides off. The reason I'm telling you that, other than that lovely little insight into the musical confusion, is that the second verse, if you remember the first verse, is ours is no journey of fear and despair. The second verse says ours is a journey of justice and care, which is an answer to that, for the positive of the, of the negative. And as we, as we remind ourselves here on Sundays and all during the week, that we are connected to all of life, grounded in that life. We have inherited something splendid and something onerous because I'm connected to everything on this planet. And what a family. And onerous because the family's hurting and I'm connected. So I've got to figure out what the loving way to do that life is. And we need that wisdom together. Focused Moments from Greta Bosper. Uh, the Focused Moment I write each week uh, to attend to uh, the gift that is being shared in terms of the concept that inspires uh, either myself or uh, this, the guest speakers. So today's, of course, is uh, inspired by the work uh, that we have to do uh, to make a sustainable environment, not only for ourselves, but to invest in that environment for future generations. Light filters its way through clouds, trees, waves of grass upon the prairie, water lapping at the shore. It meets the land, blinding brilliance on snow, Silent promise of bursting seeds, vacillating bounty south to north to south again. 
It breaks through the ocean's tensile strength, illuminating depths far beneath their vast and creviced surfaces, bidding welcome bursts of life, much of it unnamed since time began. Warmth, light's eager twin, weaves its purpose through the clouds, waves of grass upon the prairie, water lapping at the shore. It heats the land, melting snowcaps, scorching crops, migrants moving south to north to south again. It breaks through ocean's tensile strength, warming depths far beneath their vast and creviced surfaces, its penetration unfamiliar, life moving, shifting, dying, much of it unnamed since time began. We alone among Earth's living name these everlasting truths, gifts of a distant orb by which we bide our days, we count the joys and sorrows of our lives on the indifference of their strengths. Life here bounteous, there destroyed. Now amidst the shifting tides, hope yet a possibility. Next, and the deep tumult of chaos, hope drowning in tears of those we'll never know. Still. Still, we have today. Make no mistake. We have this breath, this call, this moment in our lives to speak and fill the silence with our songs. A dirge, perhaps, or the heartbreak wail of a country chorus, the visceral wedge of symphonic minor, carving scars upon our very hearts or the tuneful notes of the melody by which we learned to dance. Yes. Let our voices erupt in song, and may our music shatter silence. We have not long. One. Two. A dozen. More. Millions weep. So millions march, and we, who know the words, cast our songs, our tears, our bodies across the laws and the margins that would contain us. For it is we, and only we, can save the future from ourselves.
John tied our guest speaker to the concepts of ignorance and apathy, uh, sharing the reality that the man who will stand before you and speak uh, is neither ignorant nor apathetic about the subject uh, which he will address, which is sustainability. Working for years with the region of Durham, uh, Brian Kelly wrote the sustainability uh, plan for the region, uh, which has been prize-winning, a prize-winning plan. But Brian's shoulder has been worn raw, uh, throwing himself against that wall over and over and over again to try to get the officials, the elected officials, and those who worked uh, within the structures that they served to be attentive to the challenges presented in the sustainability report and bring them into being so that the region of Durham might stand up and shine as beautifully as did the uh, plan presented to it. And so it is an honor for me to welcome him here today, to have him share with you that passion, to invite you to bruise your shoulder against that very wall uh, as you too work where you are to bring about change. Um, and that is from Durham Region uh, over uh, to Cambridge, where Mike and Louise come from regularly, to uh, engage the political structures that are so that we might be able to stand alongside Greta Thunberg and make the change that needs to be made. Brian. Thank you, Greta. And I need to be careful because we have two Gretas present. We have your pastor, Greta Fosberg, and we have uh, Greta Thunberg, who you saw on the video. And uh, I must say that was the most... Um, I've watched many of Greta's videos, and that certainly was the most caustic and angry version of Greta that I've ever seen, and perhaps appropriately so because she was speaking to the United Nations special meeting, uh, national leaders assembled in New York, not our national leaders because they were engaged in an election campaign at that time, but national leaders uh, assembled in New York at the UN to discuss climate change. And Greta was particularly caustic about their failure to grapple with this issue, which I have labeled the issue of our lives. I feel very connected here um, today. I'm a Scarborough boy. Um, my parents owned a small piece of land right opposite where Scarborough General Hospital is. There now stands, unfortunately, a Shell gas station there, last time I checked. Uh, but that's where I was born and brought home from the hospital. Um, I lived in Scarborough nearly all of my life. Uh, I attended David and Mary Thompson Collegiate, and Barb reminded me that uh, we had attended the same high school. Um, my wife Ruth and I attended Scarborough College just over here and graduated in 1969 and 1970. Um, today's a poignant day, too, because it's the day before November 11th, and my father also served in the Canadian military, and he was involved in the liberation of France and Belgium and Holland and Germany. And he has very fond memories of the Dutch people who indeed were extremely grateful to the Canadian uh, 
soldiers who liberated their country. Um, my middle name is George, and that's because my father watched his best friend, George, die in front of his eyes. And I, as the first son, inherited the middle name George. So that's, that's enough of my personal emotion. <laughs> but I do feel very connected to this place and some of your themes. And my purpose today is to give you a little more background on climate, give you some personal reflections, fill in some of the pieces, perhaps build out some of the short snippets of information you heard um, from Greta Thunberg. I call myself sometimes now Bry the Climate Guy because I don't have an official title. As Greta has mentioned, I worked for a number of years um, in various places, but my, the end of my career was at the region of Durham. And um, about six months ago, I resigned in protest from the region of Durham because while the institution there proved great at helping me write wonderful and sometimes award-winning plans, the institution wasn't that into implementing those plans. And plans are only worth the paper they're written on until they're implemented. So I resigned in protest. Um, my wife is extremely happy to have me retired, um, but I do look forward to opportunities like this to bring some of my experience before audiences like this. So if we could perhaps go into the slide, I'm going to um, I'm a science guy. I'm sorry, I graduated from Scarborough College with a science degree. Um, so I'm going to take you through a little bit of the science, but hopefully draw out some of the implications of that. Uh, climate is one wicked problem. Here, if we could have the next slide there. Maybe not. There we go. And that's it. First of all, we often think of climate as an environmental issue. And it is an environmental issue, but it's so much more than an environmental issue. And when we think of it as an environmental issue, we tend to make the mistake of thinking of local environmental issues. We think of water pollution and air pollution, and we don't think of the global nature of climate change because emissions put into the atmosphere anywhere in the world circulate around this globe of ours and have effects on us everywhere. So some of the concepts that we are used to thinking of in, when we think of environmental issues or pollution really don't apply to climate change. And I'll get into a couple of those if we could have the next one. The science is complex, but it's becoming much more clear, and people like Greta are repeatedly saying, follow the science. Thanks to the UN, we have 8,000 of the world's top climate scientists, not just climatologists, but sociologists, economists, geologists, etc., in this institution called the IPCC, International uh, Committee on... Sorry, inter Intergovernmental, even I'm stumbling over, Intergovernmental Committee on Climate Change. These are the people that regularly review the state of the planet and 
and pull together the climate science and recommend it to the people that Greta was addressing in that UN forum that we saw at the outset here. And suffice to say, the, the political response nationally and internationally has been nowhere near what's required by the state of the science. Causes and effects of climate change are separated both by time and space. This is another area that makes it a unique environmental issue, if I can put it that way. Again, we're used to thinking of some sewage going on a in a river or a point source of air pollution and there being an effect, being a, an a action taken to reduce the emissions and there being a quick response. And we're used to that being a period of a few number of years. With climate change, we have what the scientists would call lead times and lag times built into the system. We are experiencing climate change because of CO2, methane, and other greenhouse gases put into the atmosphere over the last 140 years, perhaps, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in 1880. When we think of when coal started to be used as a mode of power generation, as a mode of transportation, as a mode of heating and cooling and so forth, that's when all of this started. That's when we moved away from biological power, people, animals, horses, etc., moving our machines to using fossil fuels. And that we are still reaping the impacts of that use of fossil fuels over these many, many decades. So we have this separation both in time and in space in that many of the emissions were created by us in the Western world, those that exploited those fossil fuels. Yet many of the impacts, the global impacts of climate change, we are visiting upon people at the bottom of the pyramid, people still in agrarian um, societies around the world. Climate has, it's like a two-sided coin. Most of the attention, when you think of climate, and we look at the press and we look at the recent election, most of the attention around climate is on what is called the mitigation side, reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. The other side of the coin is what is known as climate adaptation. And I stand before you as a person who says we need to do both. Most of the bright, shiny, interesting, policy-laden stuff that we hear about in the press these days is around climate mitigation and the various policies. And that's mostly, frankly, what Greta addresses. But there is another very important side, which I'll unpack in just a few moments, that is it's too late for us just to concentrate on reducing current and future emissions into the atmosphere. We are already very close to tipping point. We are already locked in to a future, which I'll illustrate in a few moments for you, um, that's going to be warmer, wetter or drier, depending where you are, and wilder. There's a rule of thumb in the climate science world that if you're in a dry region, it's going to get drier. Witness the recent fires in California, the raging fires today in Australia. So if it's, 
If you live in a dry climate, climate change is going to make it drier. If you live in a wet climate, and we are in borderline wet climate here in southern Ontario, it's going to get wetter. So you'll hear me in a moment outline warmer, wetter, and wilder, and those are some of the trends that we are facing. So there's climate needs, because we've left it so long to address this issue. I mean, this issue was known in the 70s and 80s. It was hypothesized in the late 1800s by physicists that the emissions of CO2 from burning coal were going to alter our atmosphere. We've known for decades and decades that CO2 and methane and a few other gases are global warming gases. And what we've done over those decades is change the chemical composition of our atmosphere. Let that sink in for a moment. What we, in, what we inherited as humankind was an atmosphere where there was about 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide. Sorry, I'm a science guy. And we are now at over 415 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We have fundamentally and irreversibly altered the chemical composition of the atmosphere that sustains life. And we're beginning to pay the consequences. Our climate is shifting and our weather patterns are shifting. Not always for, in a simple warming direction. It's called climate change because we will have both warmer and some, some places sometimes colder but we will have continuous climate change and we need to change our infrastructure, our life patterns to account for this locked-in climate change that we're going to be facing. Let me go on quickly before I spend too much time in any of these. Solving the climate change issue, both on the mitigation side and the adaptation side, there is no silver bullet. If anybody says to you, or if you read somewhere, oh, this is the solution to climate change, or nuclear power, or renewable energy, or this, or bigger pipes, or better weather forecasting, if anybody says, I've got the solution, be very suspicious, because as Al Gore famously said, there is no silver bullet. There's lots of silver buckshot. There are many, many myriad solutions that are required. There may, now that I think about it, though, there may be one silver bullet. If we wanted to stop climate change in its tracks, we could do so through worldwide thermonuclear war. What we used to worry about in the 60s and 70s was a thing called the nuclear winter, that if the world went to nuclear war, we would put so much soot and dust into the atmosphere that it would cool the earth, it would put a blanket around the earth and cool it for many decades. That's a solution, but I don't recommend it. Let's go on. Um, climate change threatens the very future of our civilization. We are entering another rapid period of extinction. We know that the changes in climate, that they are going to disrupt this very delicate balance where we have developed a human civilization that is only going to work physically, chemically, economically, socially, in terms of security, within the narrow band of climate that we experience in different places around the world. 
I believe that humankind and many of the animals and plants can survive even the worst climate change scenarios. There will be pockets of privilege. There will be people who live in air-conditioned fortresses, if I can put it that way, in places around the world. It's not, it's not that climate change is going to force us and the world to go extinct, but what it is going to do is totally decimate this little thing we call human civilization, this system of living and existing and interchanging goods and services and making life worthwhile that we call human civilization. At one of the IPCC conferences in, a few years ago, a bright young reporter stuck a microphone in front of one of the heads of the, of the scientific community and said to him something like, Sir, sir, what's the difference between two degrees of global warming and four degrees of global warming? And the scientist shot back a two-word answer, human civilization. That's what's hanging in the balance, human civilization. Let's go on. I, I'm going to spend too much time here. As we know, the issue of climate change is contentious. Some people will bristle, some people will deny, some people um, will get very upset when you and I talk about the need for climate measures. So we know that it challenges values and belief systems. We know it, ch it directly challenges the, the future of the fossil fuel industry, oil, gas, and coal, that right now provides about 80% of our energy supply around the world. So we have a huge transitional issue before us in a very few years, and I'll outline what I mean by very few in a, in a moment. We need to go from a, an energy system that's about 80% reliant on coal, gas, and oil to an energy system that is virtually totally independent of the use of coal, gas, and oil. We need to be, by 2050, at net zero carbon production worldwide if we're going to, if we're going to maintain anything close to our human civilization. An old boss of mine, Morris Strong, used to call uh, climate change the mother of all environmental issues, but I would say to you that it is, not, it is no longer just an environmental issue. It is an economic, social, um, and survival issue. And, as we've seen recently, a highly contentious political issue in this country. So, with that long-winded introduction, let's get into a few of the statistics. I'm going to edit out some of the material because I have far too much. This is what I call the spaghetti diagram. This is the summary of IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, scenarios of the future. And you can see in the left-hand side historic emissions of greenhouse gases into our global atmosphere. And then you can see a whole bunch of scenarios represented by the, the red, gray, yellow, blue, green lines on that diagram. Each of those are separate scenarios of combinations of human population, human economic growth, the energy system fueling that economic activity, climate policies, 
the emergence of renewable non-emitting uh, non, uh, forms of energy production and a whole bunch of other so we have a wide range of possible futures going up to 2100 and you can see some on the upper end and this this is an old graph this goes back to 2014 so this is a five-year-old graph and one of the trends that you will need to appreciate is that nearly every one of the projections made by the scientists have been exceeded in terms of rates of change, rates of, of, of degradation. You know, glaciers are melting much faster than we thought. The Arctic is becoming ice-free much faster than we thought. Global temperatures are rising much faster than we thought. Since the advent of the, of the Industrial Revolution around 1880, the average global temperature has increased already by one degree Celsius. And we are warned by scientists that we have to keep it under somewhere between one and a half and two. That doesn't sound like a very big range to play with. And a recent report that came out about a year ago, last October 2018, from IPCC again said, the, the target set at the Paris conference of the parties in 2015, about four years ago from next month, was two degrees Celsius with an ambition target of 1.5. And what the scientists pointed out is the, the need to get onto that 1.5 trajectory and the huge difference in the implications, the, the damages that will be caused between that 1.5 and 2. What that graph showed, maybe we could go back to that for just a moment, is that we have a very wide range of possible futures. If you get into some of the negative ones, uh, the sorry, I won't use the term negative, the blue band of projections, as you can see, that's still projecting that our global temperature will be going up somewhere between That's already, in, in some cases, into a dangerous zone. At the top end, we're into four or five or six degrees of global temperature increase, and much of that before the middle of the century. This one, these graphs go out to the end of the century. Basically, the takeaway here is anything beyond the blue band at the bottom gets us into runaway climate change where we no longer have any control over what's happening. We are triggering things like the melting of the permafrost and the release of massive uncontrolled amounts of, of methane from the melting and the anaerobic decomposition of the permafrost across Canada's north and Russia's north. That is a huge store of carbon that has been put there over the centuries. If we trigger enough warming to melt that, uh, it is game over. We are into runaway catastrophic climate change over which we will have no control whatsoever. Sorry, I need to move on. Let's move. There are three concepts I want to outline for you to summarize the science. That's the second one. The first one is around something called the carbon budget. The science is now precise enough that we could calculate 
how much carbon we can add to the atmosphere from the baseline in 1880, 140 years ago, the baseline in 1880 to the point where we trigger runaway climate change, where we get over two degrees Celsius global average temperature increase. And that amount is somewhere, and you heard Greta made a, make a couple of references to these carbon budget numbers. That number is somewhere in the range of 2,000 gigatons. The bad news is that today, 2019, out of that budget, we've already burned through three quarters of it. We have one quarter of that budget left that amount of, uh, of absorption of our emissions that the atmosphere can take before we trigger runaway climate change. So that's one scientific concept I want to leave you with. It's known as the, the global carbon budget. Think of it as a household budget. We've already used three quarters of it. We have one quarter left. The second concept which is addressed by this slide, and again this is a somewhat dated slide, is unburnable carbon. There's that number in the middle there of sorry. So some of the numbers I've thrown out to you. Two hundred and eighty parts per million uh, in twenty fourteen we were at about uh, four hundred. We're today we're at about four hundred and fifteen parts per million. Um, if we go to 450 parts per million, which is projected to happen by 2030, um, we will be into uncharted territory. We will be into runaway climate change. If I could have the bottom of that slide, though, the really jarring news is that the amount of carbon represented by proven fossil fuel reserves still unexploited is five times that budget. So there are the numbers. We, the analysis in 2014 said we had 565 gigatons of room left in the atmosphere. The world's fossil fuel companies have explored and proven reserves which, if used, will put five times as much into the atmosphere as the atmosphere can safely absorb. And yet we continue to spend over a trillion dollars a year. We, our fossil fuel companies, continue to spend over a trillion dollars a year exploring for new forms of oil, gas, coal, fracked oil, fracked coal, et cetera, et cetera. And we have no chance, if we're going to survive, of using that. What a colossal failure of the capitalistic system that we put all of those resources into something we cannot use. So that's the unburnable carbon story. The last element I want to leave you with is the tipping point story, and you heard Greta refer to this. We have about 10 years left. As we stand here at the end of 2019, if we continue to put greenhouse gases into our global atmosphere at the current rate, we will cross the line into uncontrollable runaway climate change by 2030. And that's why you heard Greta in that angry voice say, you have failed us. 
her, the number she used said we have about 10 years left. So the science tells us that we have to reduce our current level of emissions by approximately 50% by 2030, and we have to cut it another 20, another 50% by 2040, and another, we have to, ha each decade from now until 2050, we have to cut in half our global climate emissions so that we arrive at 2050 with something like an eighth of the global emissions that we currently have. And hopefully we will have by that point the technology to absorb those. Again, you heard Greta refer to absorption technologies, which aren't yet proven and aren't, certainly aren't yet economic. We have, we have to be basically, the science now tells us, at net zero carbon emissions to the atmosphere by 2050. What a colossal, colossal challenge that is. The only similar challenge, it's perhaps, perhaps a rather poignant one because we're wearing these poppies today, as a number of people have reminded us, the world faced, the last time the world faced challenges of that magnitude was World War I and World War II, and in particular World War II, where we abandoned partisan politics, in, at least in this country, we created a war cabinet to do what was best for the country. We took institutions like General Motors who were turning out automobiles in 1939 and converted them into armament companies to turn out the tanks and other uh, equipment that we needed to fight the war against fascism because our future was at stake. And we rose to that occasion. And a number of people, like Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party, have said, we're in a similar situation where our very futures, not just our freedom, but the survival of civilization, the physical survival of, of civilization, not just the freedom of civilization, is at stake. And we need to rise to that challenge in a similar fashion. So I hope I've left you with a little bit of understanding of those three scientific concepts. Sorry, I'm a science guy again. There's the, the global carbon budget, the unburnable carbon, and the tipping point, all of which are very dramatic and very compelling. That slide is uh, outlining a couple of the themes I hope to draw out and wind up momentarily. I want to tell you a little bit about my story and what is happening at the region of Durham, just east of here. I gather a number of you live in the region of Durham. I know Greta and her husband do. Um, I worked for the region of Durham from 2010 until very recently, as Greta has outlined, developing three, in particular, plans on climate. The first one was our climate mitigation. Perhaps we can go to the next slide there, Peter. Um, that one. Uh, that's our climate mitigation plan. It's quite dated. It's, it was approved by Regional Council in 2012. 
So this is now seven years out of date. It did identify and endorse the reduction targets of the time, uh, minus 5% by 2015, minus 20% by 2020, and, and minus 80% by 2050. Uh, those have now got a little, even a little more challenging, so that the official target now needs to be net zero by 2050, not 20%, um, still being uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there were 18 proposed programs in that plan. Next slide, we followed that a few years later by the other side of the coin. That was our climate mitigation plan, reducing our emissions to the atmosphere. This is the climate adaptation plan, changing the physical nature of our communities, our, our stormwater systems, our roads, our emergency response systems, the type of buildings we build so that they will be resilient to the future climate. Again, 18 programs approved in principle by regional council, very few of them implemented. Next slide. This particular piece of work, which is represented by this document, um, benefited from some projections of what the climate in Durham right next door, uh, is going to be in the 2040s. And just to leave you with a little bit of this information, I'm going to walk through these as quickly as I can. As I said, warmer. Four degrees Celsius warmer on average in Durham than in the last decade. This is comparing two decades. The, the period of the 2040s, 2040 to 2049, compared to a base period of 2000 to 2009. Average temperature in Durham, summer and winter, four degrees warmer. That's twice what we're trying to hold, two or three times what we're trying to hold the global average temperature increase to. And that's because we are a northern, relatively northern uh, place on the globe, and the impacts of climate change are going to be exaggerated as we as you move towards the towards the poles. Already in the Canadian Arctic today, we have seen global, we have seen temperature rises in the Canadian Arctic of four to eight degrees Celsius. And that's because the poles are much more sensitive to global warming than the equatorial regions. So you can see some of the numbers up there. Maybe you can read them. 5.8 degree average increase in winter, uh, somewhat less in summer. A little bit of good news, we're going to have less snow, less snow to shovel, less ice. Um, but in the summer, our heat waves are going to be seven degrees Celsius warmer. So think of the hottest heat wave you can remember over the last 19 years and add 7.1 degrees Celsius to that. Wetter, we're going to have only 16% more precipitation, but it's going to be concentrated in certain periods. We're going to have much wetter summers, 72% uh, more rain in July and 79% more in August, 75% uh, less snow in February. February will become, perhaps happily, a shoulder month. And lastly, wilder, uh, in more intense rainfall, 15% increase in the potential for violent storms, and a 53% increase in the potential for tornadoes. This is in Durham. This is right next door to you. Very similar numbers, as the last bullet tells you, will apply across southern Ontario. So 
transport some of those numbers into your reality, whether it's here in West Hill or whether it's um, in Durham next door. And that's what those numbers are locked in. We cannot do anything about those numbers. It is the nature of the leads and the lags in the global climate system that that's what the future in Durham is going to look like. We have to adapt to that. It's what the future beyond 2050 is going to look like that's at stake in what we do on the mitigation side. And lastly, in Durham, if I could go to the next slide, uh, that was the vision for Durham. Sorry, I forgot that slide was there. That's the, the vision for that adaptation plan. And you'll see the reference to mid-century trying to make Durham and West Hill a uh, livable, resilient region at least through the middle of the century. After the middle of the century, all the bets are off. We can't, con we in Durham can't control what the, what the climate is going to be beyond that period of time. That, that requires the global response that Greta Thunberg was talking about in addressing the UN. Quickly, and I'll wind up in just a moment, the last piece of work that I did at Durham was this one. This is our community energy plan called the Clean Energy Economy in Durham, Seizing the Opportunity. This is Durham's equivalent of the Toronto, City of Toronto plan that you heard about in the announcement section. Um, that's called Transform TO, and this is in Durham, this is what we call it. Um, and the next slide illustrates, if we were to implement this plan, it's approved in principle, if we were to implement it, we could reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in Durham by 70% between now and 2050. We have a target of 80%, so we're no, even with the application of all of the renewable and conservation technologies and other policies, we don't quite meet our 80% reduction target. But I would remind you that Durham is a rapidly growing area. We are going to double our population in Durham between now and 2050. So doubling your population and reducing your greenhouse gas emissions by 70%, I think, is a pretty admirable thing, and it is possible for us to do it. But again, these three plans were approved. If you add up the number of programs within the plans, there were 42. By my count, and I'm being somewhat generous here, uh, the politicians in Durham and the bureaucrats in Durham are moving on two out of the 42 programs. Um, that's not a passing grade, and that's why I resigned on May the 31st of this year uh, in protest, because I didn't think Dur Durham was doing enough to implement these plans and to safeguard our futures. Lastly, let's just wind up by saying the low-carbon future, conservation, renewables, electric vehicles, all of that good stuff is absolutely necessary. We don't have a choice if we're going to save human civilization. And it's not just here in Durham. It's this, the, the huge challenge is this needs to be done around the world. Durham or Toronto or even Ontario or even Canada cannot by itself solve the issue of global warming. This requires a global response. We can lead, we can show, we can develop technologies, we can demonstrate them, we can lead the way, and that, I believe that influence element is very important. 
but we cannot mitigate climate change solely here in Durham because we're such a small part of the problem. The good news is that there are countries that are moving. Canada has a modest record in this area, nowhere near what's required. Climate change, in addition to being the challenge of our times, is also the business opportunity of the century. Solving climate change, changing our economy from a carbon economy to a low carbon economy is the business opportunity of the century. And Canada needs to stimulate and exploit that business opportunity. And our policies at this point are nowhere near sufficient to do either of those. So um, it's absolutely necessary. It will protect low income people in regions. Um, adaptation is absolutely necessary. So we need both. We need climate mitigation all of those policies and programs and retrofits and electric cars and solar panels and wind turbines and all of those things you read about almost daily in the paper. But because we've left it so late, because 31 years ago, the world's first climate change conference was held in the city of Toronto. In 1988, the UN convened the first global conference on climate change and recognized climate change and recognized the science. And we have dithered for 31 years. Now we have to move very quickly. We have to now cut our emissions in half every decade from now until mid-century. I've gone over time. Coffee's waiting. I know I haven't been terribly optimistic. I hope I've left you with a challenge. I hope I've provided a little bit of the science behind the claims that I've made and that you see people like Greta Thunberg making. Um, and I invite you to follow up with questions. We haven't even talked about what we as individuals can do. What we've talked mostly about is what policies we need, because as individuals we can't do this alone. We need leadership from our governments. And this past election was an, has been called, I think rightly by many, as the climate change election, because climate change was such an important factor in the most recent election. And it will in, in continue in this minority parliament federally and in our Ontario situation provincially <coughs> to be incredibly important. It is the fight of our lives. Thank you. Thank you for not sugarcoating this, for making it clear that there is much that we know we can do. There's so much that has been written, that has been um, proven, that has been offered as opportunity for us to embrace and, and make change, make the world a better place. The United Church was part of that conference in 1988. Uh, we saw what was happening, and we had 
the opportunity for the last 30 years to make small changes that would have redirected where we were headed and, and placed us in a different place now. But we were slow about that. We were far too slow. So we need those kinds of comments, those challenges, that hard stuff that hits us so that we can open our eyes and make the change that we would do. I'm, I'm going to invite you to stand. Oh, yes, thank you. Just as we're preparing to go, I'm going to present you with a, a memento uh, from West Hill, um, turned from the pews, actually, by John DePetty, who makes these. So may it be a light uh, in the darkness that you feel around you. Not many of you uh, lived through uh, the last world war. Some of you, perhaps, but not many of you would have tried to figure out how to feed your family on the rations that you were given. And not many of you would have to figure out how to get from one place to another when there was no fuel uh, for you to put in the vehicle that you owned. And not many of you would have felt the deep challenges and changes that the rations and the implementation of the war effort uh, brought to the people who stayed at home while those they loved uh, went across the ocean and were killed. But the world is already heading into, in places, that next world war, which will be catastrophic uh, because it will be fought about climate and about our failure to have made the change that we need to make. So let's make that change now. Let's make it and do it. And let's help our children avoid of those wars and that strife and the challenges that they will face because we are as strong as those who kept the home fires burning back in the last world war. We are, and we have technologies and we have one another and we can do this. We've got it. So let's make it happen. Go into that crazy world. Take your heart, take your voice, take your presence at the table and help us make the change that we need to make for those we love and those we will never know. Go in peace. listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.